I think one of the things that's brilliant about the liturgy is that it helps us do things over and over and over. It's like going to a fitness center. You don't work out one time and suddenly you're healthy, right? You start small and you start building that muscle. And I really think the spiritual life, obviously infused by the spirit, has that similar way of growth. It's not all or nothing. It's not do it once and it's fixed. But it's join this current. It's join this movement and be formed over time. Well, friends, that is Aaron Nequist, who is with us on the podcast today, and we have some great conversations. Aaron, if you don't know who he is, he's a liturgist and a writer and a pastor, lives out in New York. We talk about all kinds of things. We talk about his movement from being an evangelical megachurch worship leader to becoming more oriented towards liturgy and practice. We talk about bringing about change in the church and particularly in worship services. We talk about how to build a worship service with an eye towards a formative journey, about liturgy as building a muscle of spiritual development, and we get into a bit of what it looks like to move to a place where we transcend and include our faith heritage. And then Aaron shares a little bit about an upcoming retreat that he's leading for pastors, priests, and guides. And so I think uh, some of you will be intrigued by that, and that may be a helpful thing for some of you to consider participating in. So we talk about all that in the episode. And before we get there, just really quick, I wanted to let you all know that we have put a date on the calendar for the next Post-Evangelical Collective this is a gathering for pastors and artists and church leaders. It's, it's meant to be a space to create a context for people who have felt alone in the work that they're doing, to be able to build some relationships with women and men who are doing like-minded work. It's meant to be a space to learn from one another, to share ideas and resources on ministry tools and structures and resources that are unique in, in this sort of aspect of church life and this this post-evangelical space, and it's meant to create a bit of space for the Spirit to encourage you and refresh you and maybe even re-envision those of you who maybe are a bit weary or even a bit lonely in the work that you have been doing that's oriented towards the church. And so we are going to be doing that October 11th and 12th this year, 2022. It's going to be in Denver, Colorado this year. So I am looking forward to that as we get more details going. We'll share all of that as we get a way to register. I don't have any of that up yet. I just simply wanted to let you know, because I know that many of you listening were a part of the one with us last year in South Bend, which was so encouraging and I think really a special time for a lot of us. And that was, I mean, I could go on and on talking about like what a shock and surprise it was that so many of you came about the way that we had to just completely rethink what we were doing because, you know, as I've said multiple times, it was meant to be just like 20 of us there and then around 120 of us show up. And so we learned so much at that. And so looking forward to this year with those of you who went last year, those of you who wish that you could have been there, those of you who want to bring others with you. So October 11th and 12th in Denver, Colorado, looking forward to seeing you there. Just mark it on your calendar. We'll have more uh, coming up soon. And so pay attention on my Instagram, pay attention here. 
Uh, if you're not subscribed to my newsletter, you can subscribe to that at mikegoldsworthy.com or just pull up pull up my profile on Instagram and there's a subscription link there. But anyways, we'll get all that information out. But wanted to let you know, October 11th to 12th, Denver, Colorado. All right, let's go ahead and turn it over to our conversation with Aaron. Well, friends, we have Aaron Nequist with us today. Am I saying your last name right? Is it- Correct. It is. Okay. My mother would would slap her knee and say Nequist. So that's how she would do that. I mean, I feel like that's what I have been saying with you is Nequist. Yeah. And then I just had this moment of like, oh, we're recording. And I said your last <laughs> name. And I may be totally butchering it. And you would be so kind as to not say anything. And then it would be out on the internet forever of me of me butchering your last name. And you don't want to know how many times that's happened. I'm sure. I'm sure. About half the people I know and love in real life call me Nyquist. And I just, I I let it go. I mean, you know. All right. Well, yeah, because you're (laughs) kind and generous. Yeah. And I appreciate that. Well, so, Aaron, you you are a husband, a father, a liturgist, a writer, podcaster, creator of... Uh, new liturgical experiences and expressions is that is that fair to say yeah. i mean I, I want i want to be yeah, yeah. love yeah. that definitely so i uh, i have multiple sorts of things that i okay. thought we could chat about today that i thought could be interesting and fun we got a chance to connect for the first time last year as we were working together on this post evangelical gathering and it was fun to have you be a part of helping to lead some of the liturgy and music during that like that was a really yes. fun experience but we've got a bunch of friends in common and yep yep and uh, you know when i when i put together these podcasts i have a little thing for you to fill out to say like hey let's figure out this time and then say like is there anything else that we should talk about beyond what we talked about we were going to talk about and what you put was uh, our mutual friend steve carter that you'd like to talk about his washboard abs so do we yeah i mean i just thought that would be a helpful place to start i think so i mean we both we both admire. In all seriousness, though, like a really meaningful podcast episode for me last year was listening to Steve on your podcast mm. where when his new book was coming out. Yeah. And I found myself multiple times just like pausing it and just getting really emotional as you all sort of like processed stuff for us to all kind of like listen in on. And that was really yeah. like meaningful and powerful. I just, yeah, I wanted to tell you, like I've told you this before, but I just want mm. to tell you how much I appreciated that and that vulnerability that you invited us all into. Thank you. Steve is, Steve's been one of my best friends in the world and for a lot of years now. And then, yeah, just the willow implosion was just, I mean, it just caused pain in so many directions and we are actively saying, Hey, that wasn't about us. Mm. So let's continue to build our friendship and so yeah we're, we're actually talking right now about getting get, getting together this spring and so yeah so yeah i love thanks. that yeah i love that yeah well one of the things that's been interesting to me about your own journey is watching you sort of transition from being a worship leader in large evangelical spaces doing things yeah. with like was tracking with you actually the first time i experienced you was at a student ministry conference at willow creek when you were leading student ministry wow. stuff there wow. and i was a i was a student ministry pastor and 
sat in on something that you did about worship services there. And then... 2001 or two or something. Yeah, it would have been somewhere around there. Yeah. It was a long time ago. And you had put out an album then that I think we were doing some songs off of there. Okay. Yep. And then I tracked with you at Mars. I was... I was really early on. I was back in the day when Mars Hill and Grand Rapids launched. What you could do, and I know I know the kids listening will not understand this, but <laughs> I subscribed to tapes from from churches that would yep uh, their sermons would be on tapes and then they would mail me their tapes every week. Wow. So I got wow. the midweek ones from from Willow Creek yep. and then I started getting the ones from Mars Hill. Every week, I would get Rob's stuff. Wow! And then you went over okay. there, and we're leading over there, and yeah, and obviously, I was friends with Steve, and he went yep. over there, and so I was kind of tracking with what was happening with you all there. Then you go back to Willow, yep, yep. and you're leading at Willow, but then you begin this sort of experiment there called the practice, yeah, where you're leaning more into a practice based faith, more into liturgy. Like, I, I know I just like sort of condensed down this this thing that was going on. But do you mind talking about like what that experience was like? How did that all like? happen? Yes. How how did that happen? I know you wrote a book that gets into that, some called The Eternal sure. Current. But yeah, give us the little picture yeah. of that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Even hearing you tell that story, it's it's a weird story. Maybe the simplest way to say this. So I'll give a very simple explanation, which obviously real life is so much more complex and multi-layered. But the simple explanation is when I got to Mars Hill, I show up as the worship leader and Rob is, especially at that time, speaking about the vast beauty of the kingdom. It's all about this life that, that through Christ we've been invited into to partner with what God's doing in the world. It's just this, just this vast invitation into the good news. And I remember showing up and I looked down in my worship leading toolbox and all I had was pop songs. Hmm. Like all I had was, was like a pep rally. And here's the thing. I still do pop songs and I still think we need to learn how to celebrate. So there, there was nothing in my toolbox or not much in my toolbox that I don't think is really good and beautiful. It just couldn't on its own capture the beauty of what Rob was talking about. And so, yeah, I've joked, it was almost like, you know, trying to paint this beautiful Van Gogh with a single color. You know, that color is important. It's just, it's just not enough. And so it was in the Mars Hill era where we started just saying, all right, how do other Christian communities do it? What do they do when they come together? And that's where, you know, I really, I discovered for me, it's been around for thousands of years, but it's new to me, the liturgy. And, you know, the Book of Common Prayer and these practices like confession and assurance and passing the peace and all, all these things that were really new to me. And so that became, I mean, those Mars Hill years were probably the most exciting church experiences of my whole life. I'm, mm. I'm not sure I'll ever have that kind of like nuclear excitement, which didn't always make it a great church, but, but it was exciting. And so then when I moved back to Chicago and jumped in at Willow, I wanted to bring all of these new learnings and questions. And I wanted, wanted to expand as wide as possible and learn pretty quickly. And I should have known that this was my idealism 
but learned pretty quickly that maybe the weekend service at Willow Creek Church is not the place for expansive ecumenical practice-based spirituality. Can, and can so, I stop you there real of quick? Of course. Yeah. Because I think like this is really interesting to me just as a practical leadership thing for folks that are trying to transition their church in different yeah. kinds of ways. Yeah. Why did you feel like, oh, maybe this isn't, or why did you learn maybe this isn't the right space to experiment in this kind of way? Yeah. Okay. What a great question. <clears throat> I have like 37 answers to that. So <laughs> let, let's stay here for a minute. I don't have them organized well. So but let me start with this. One of the things that I learned at Willow is whoever asks the question determines the answer and everything we put in it. So what I mean, if the question for a weekend service, oh no, no if, a, if the question for the worship leader is how do we get the room fired up in the first 25 minutes of the service? I don't think that's an evil question. I don't think it's the best question, but once you get clear on it, if that's the question, the answer is never confession sure. or an extended scripture reading or lament or praying for the world or you name it. I mean, that question, how do we get the room fired up, eliminates so many things that unfortunately at that point I had come to believe were necessary for forming a community into wholeness and Christ-likeness. Hmm. So I think once I bumped into, and what, what's wild is the, the functional question is rarely the question that we, we would rarely admit that that's the functional question. You know, of course, no one would say that, but we all knew it because in the debriefs, you know, the Tuesday after we were being evaluated based on was the room fired up. Okay. So I think the, the first answer to that is getting really clear on what, what you're being asked to do as a worship leader, really. And so that was a, I would say the other thing that I didn't take into account, I made a lot of mistakes in that era. One, I didn't take into account how ex-Catholic the Willow Creek community was. Oh, that's interesting. And I, I, I actually read in the 80s and 90s, they did a, a number of uh, surveys and found that 75% of Willow attenders had been Catholic or attended Catholic, a Catholic mass at some point. 75%. So I show up and I want to sing Kyrie Eleison. And which for me is new and fresh and inclusive and beautiful. And afterwards, whenever I would do something that felt Catholic, afterwards I'd have three lines of people. And the first line of people I would know right away because they had smoke coming out of their ears and they would say, God saved me out of the Catholic church. Don't you dare bring, bring it back. So that was one group. They were angry. Well, the pastor in me wanted to sit down and like enter into that. Like, well, tell me, you're, you've obviously been hurt. What do you need to let go of from your Catholic past? What can you hold on to? You know, but that wasn't my job standing in the auditorium at that moment, you know. But the second group 
were always like, oh, this is new and interesting. They had never been exposed to Catholic practice. And so that was good. But the third group, they would often have tears in their eyes and they'd just say, thank you for reminding me that not all of my past was bad. And that was really meaningful to me because frankly, I need those reminders. I need people to remind me of the things in my past that I've needed to let go of or for whatever reason, move, move past also had some real beauty to it. And yes. so that was really meaningful. Yes. Yes. It, is there also, gosh, now I'm going in three different directions in my mind. Cause I'm thinking yeah. one, like, I want to talk to you a little bit about that idea of transcending and including of moving yeah. to this point of like, yep. what is the, you know, the beautiful from our past we take with us. Yeah. I'm also thinking at a practical level, one of the things I've come to realize in some of the work that I'm doing is in different ways, you need some sort of point of stability that yes. allows for flexibility or change in other areas. Yes. And so I think about that in terms of like our faith journeys, but yep. I also think about that in terms of like the way churches will change and introduce change. Mm -hmm. And I had wondered for you if some of the Willow experience was like, oh, the weekend service needs to be a point of stability, like in predictability for people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you're introducing too much that might trigger some sensibilities maybe yeah. or might violate what is a unspoken ethos that we want to have in the room at that yeah. time, that that it makes it harder to bring about change. Is that is that a fair assumption? That's very fair. And I wish we would have been friends before I took that job because you could have helped me. <laughs> because if I would articulate my number one mistake at Willow, trying to bring these liturgical streams in, is I tried to change the form and the style at the same time. Okay. So from a form standpoint, I really wanted to move from what five songs are we going to sing to what kind of 20-minute journey are we going to go on? Some of that is songs, some of that is a reading, some space, you know. The, the community would have gone on that journey. And in fact, when we were able to bring less just singing songs and more a liturgical journey, people really jumped on. The problem is, in my excitement and immaturity, I also wanted to move us away from only Chris Tomlin songs to a wider style of, of worship. And it was too much. And in fact, when I was invited back to lead a communion service at Willow, after I had already gone to do the practice thing, I, I, I said, I'm not going to make the mistake. And we built the whole Eucharist liturgy on Matt Redman's 10,000 Reasons. Okay. Be because A, that's a wonderful song just on its own. But two, that's the language of the community. And so if I could go back, I would try to stretch and change and deepen the form by using the language of the community rather mm. than trying to change both. It's good. It's incarnational, right? It's meeting them where they are in order to bring yes. them to a new place. Absolutely. Yeah. And style, like why, who was I to try to suggest we should do a different style? That's, that's preference. That's largely in the land of preference. What matters is the formation, the practices, the things we're doing. And so I wish I would have, yeah, honored the style, but then invited the practices into a deeper place. That's interesting. So I derailed you a bit that you were, you were talking about you're at Willow, 
you're leading from the main stage, you're trying yeah. to do some of that in the main stage and start to realize like, oh, this isn't working here. And so does that, is that where the practice then launches? Exactly. Yeah. At, at the time, our senior pastor just said, pulled me aside and said, listen, we're never doing this stuff that you want us to do on weekends. That's not what weekends are for, which I thought, Oh, this conversation's going bad. But then he jumped in and he said, but we know people need them. Which shocked me. And he even said, he said, we know we're not doing enough for those who really want to go deep in their faith. And so would you consider pulling together a team and creating something that would help those people move deep? And so that was probably 2013, maybe that conversation. And then we started on Sunday nights called The Practice. You mentioned that. And we just said every, every Sunday night, I would start by saying we are a community that doesn't just want to believe things about Jesus, but wants to learn how to rearrange our lives in order to put his words into practice for the sake of the world. Hmm. And so every night was just, we, we would have an opening liturgy, kind of a modern type of liturgy. Then we'd have a very short teaching that led us to a practice. So 10 to 12 minutes of teaching, 15 to 20 minutes of practice. And then that would all lead us to the table and then send us out. So, yeah. It, and is your creating like the opening liturgy, you said like a modern kind of liturgy, are you just, yeah. are you creating that from scratch? How, how, where is that coming from? Yeah. The short answer is yes, we were creating it from scratch. The longer answer, and maybe if, you know, if this was just a con you know, an hour on creating a liturgy, I'd love to tell you where we pulled all these, all these different parts from. Maybe I'll, I'll say this. We always started with the texts from the lectionary that Sunday. So okay. whoever is writing the liturgy would sit down with those texts and just prayerfully ask, what's the story? And then how with our, with our opening liturgy, can we join that story? And so that's usually where we started. I like that. And that's one of the things I found helpful for me in your work as I've connected with it, particularly with you, you create these, these new liturgies, which is, is that at a new liturgy.com? Is that where they're at? Yep. A new liturgy.com. Yeah. A new liturgy.com. Yep. And when you were putting those out and you're still putting those out as I engaged with those, I found those to be a really helpful, I guess, like reimagining. I guess you'd say of like a yeah. liturgical experience where it didn't feel to me so foreign that it was hard to overcome, but it also sure. felt really helpful as a new and different way for me to engage in whatever the particular subject or that you had for it. Yeah. And oh, it man. like, thank you. Yeah. It, it reminded me of, I was sitting in a talk one time that James K. A. Smith was giving who I appreciate in a lot yeah. of ways. And he builds this whole case for recapturing Christian imagination. And so I'm with him on it. I'm like, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Then he says, and here's what we do with that. And he says, we reclaim liturgy. And he didn't talk about reimagining liturgy. And maybe yeah. he does this talk differently, but he talked about reclaiming liturgy. And I was like, I felt so deflated in some sure. ways because I felt like, gosh, you're, you're inspiring me to recapture imagination. And then you're telling me the way to recapture that is to go back a few hundred years to the imagination that was created in that time and that place, <laughs> as opposed exactly right. to yep. learning from them, building on, like standing on their shoulders and yeah. saying, and then what does it look like and mean for us to 
do that same heartbeat in our time and our place. And so anyways, in a new liturgy, I felt like, and tell me if I'm off on that, I felt like that's some of what I was experiencing yeah. there was, was that sort of reimagination. Yeah, man, thank you for saying it that way. That's, that's really encouraging, especially in those early days. I mean, we were, we had no idea what we were doing and that was some of the excitement of it. But yeah, just pulling from every kind of source, trying to serve a formative journey. I always use the word journey. I know journey can be such a cliche these days, but I mean it as, as opposed to a set of subsequent experiences or songs, you know, not a playlist. It's not a playlist. It's, it's almost like a musical or something that takes you on. The themes keep coming back and it's one whole story. Yeah. So are you thinking about worship services in that kind of way now? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a beginning, middle, and end. Uh, It's both content, but also energy and experience. And yeah, I think of the different movements like chapters and you build on the last and then you bring themes back. And yeah, very much so. And how does the sermon fit into that? Because in the experience that I come out of and maybe that you come out of too was that the sermon the sermon is the pinnacle of yep. everything in the worship service. Yep. And yep. so once the sermon theme is developed, then the worship team builds some stuff essentially right. to build into the sermon and to build right. out of this. It's all about yeah. supporting the sermon, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it seems to me you're doing something a bit different. Oh that the sermon definitely. doesn't isn't thrown by the wayside, but is one piece of the puzzle. Exactly. So if we're telling in an eight-chapter story, the sermon is chapter six, and it's crucially important. But if, and this was really hard, especially those who grew up giving sermons where they were the whole story. I mean, yeah. in a lot of contexts I've been in, the, the opening music isn't even part of the story. It's the warm-up for the, for the story. And so, yeah, we were really trying to It's almost like we would take what was historically the sermon, put it up on the board and then say, all right, what part of the story will be music? What part of the story will be a practice? What part of the story will be lecture? What part of the story will be scripture? And it's, it's maybe a little more time intensive, but it's so exciting to do. I like that to like, yeah, deconstruct the, the parts of what you would normally have talked about. Yeah. And it's so hard for somebody like me being trained as a preacher. Right. It, even when I have stepped into spaces in more liturgical churches where they tell me you have 13 minutes and I'm like, right. <laughs> I can't even introduce myself in 13 minutes. <laughs> yep. But, yep. But, and you feel like you're not working or like you're not doing yeah. it's a to, It's a totally different kind of speaking experience. Yes. Especially coming out of an evangelical tradition where it, yep. everything is so dependent on the sermon that you feel like. I don't know. You feel like you're cheating or something. Sure. And it's hard. It's it, it's been a hard reframing for me in those spaces. Yeah, and I think probably the first step in those, you know, for for those like you who have been, you know, who are great at giving a full sermon, like the full meal, is maybe just a just thinking it part one and a part two. You know, I'm going to do an eighty percent of the sermon I would do. But rather than me tell the three stories that land the plane or whatever, I'm going to invite so-and-so up to lead us in a practice that helps us embody that. 
And even, you know, something like that is, yeah. can be really, really powerful. I am not, I am really against the sermon as the only thing, <laughs> but I am not against the sermon. I mean, sermons have changed my life. And so I think the proclaimed word has a crucial, crucial part as long as we don't think it's the whole story. Yeah. Yeah. So even the way that you're talking about this is fascinating to me because it feels like you are in this place of, and you've uh, even written about this recently in a few different times and ways on Instagram. Yeah. About like, it feels like you have moved past reaction into a place of like, how do we, uh, of this place of sort of like transcend and include. Hmm. So I'm thinking of, there's a couple of, of things that you posted recently. One was you, you posted this thing about, I think you called it widening the window. Yeah. About. Yep. And so that it felt to me like that was capturing some of this. And then there was also this, this reaction that we were watching happen online to somebody had written something. I'm, I'm assuming that this is what about had written something in the New York times and there's sure. a strong reaction to that. Yeah. And you wrote something to the, actually, I, I pulled it up here. I'm going to, you said, am I allowed to both disagree with someone's public work and lament the glee that many take in piling onto them? Truth and pushback are holy and needed, but snark and cruelty cannot make the world better. We need God. We need another way. Yeah. So were you, were you living in a place of angry reaction at some point where you moved beyond that? Is this always been, you've always sort of like sat in this kind of tension. I'm curious about how that, how you're able to sit in this kind of tension. Yeah. And even we've talked a little bit about this, like where are the communities who's, who's doing this kind of work of non-reactionary holding in a non-binary sort of space. Right. So yeah. Like how did you get there? And then what a great question. I think, (laughs) <laughs> the way I got there is by doing it wrong 600 times in a row, honestly. Sure. My personality, I am an all, in noth- all or nothing person. We were watching the Super Bowl and a friend just said, so are, have you been following the season? And I said, no, if I add NFL to my life, I will go, it'll become a 20 hour a week <laughs> job where I follow the, every team, and, you know, so I, I'm not very good at moderation. That's just not my personality. However, I have tried to do the opposite of the thing that I oppose so many times only to just burn the whole conversation down. It doesn't work. And it doesn't, it doesn't work because it's a technique that doesn't work. It doesn't work because it's not true. Reality is often entangled with both arguments. And what's the great quote? The first time I went to the Middle East, I can't say the name of the theologian, but he said the line between good and evil is not between nations, but through the heart of every single one of us. (laughs) And it just, it strikes me as so much more true. And so, you know, even when I look back at my experience, some of the things that I had kind of stopped believing both theologically and practically, part of those were like movements forward. And part of those were things that I just lost center a little bit. And so (laughs) the way forward is to recapture some and let go of others. 
rather than just a wholesale trade out. You've mentioned include and transcend a couple times. Yeah. Can I just say like 60 seconds about that? No, please, please say 120 seconds about it. <laughs> this has been such a profoundly helpful idea. And I learned it from Ken Wilbur and probably Richard Rohr is probably the secondary person I've heard talk the most about this idea. But the whole idea is you think of it linearly when you move from step one to step two, and then you grow and learn, you move from step two to step three. When we're moving to the next step, the easiest thing for us to do is look back at the last step and, and destroy it. You know, when we're moving from step three to step four, you know, who are the biggest idiots in the world? Those step three people, right? The problem is step three got us to step four. Thank God for step three. And so include and transcend says, don't reject where you've been, include it into a bigger reality. And it doesn't mean we can include all of it. There are some things from, I've been a part of a couple different seasons of faith, and there are a couple things I've had to just say, no, I, I reject, I let go. But I'm telling you, those are rare. More commonly, I'm able to say, you know what? That looked weird, but the heart of it is so good. I want to bring that into a wider world. So, yeah. So even though we, we say reject something, I, I often say second grade is wonderful. You just can't stay there. You need to move from step grade, second grade into third grade, but you need to bring what you learned in second grade into the bigger thing. So, yeah. I think it's Roar who talks about it this way. Maybe it's Brian McLaren. I'm trying to think of who I've heard shape it this way because yeah. one of the things that's been a struggle for me in some of that conversation is it can sound like I'm saying this other experience is a is a lesser experience, right? That sure. you were in second grade and, and yeah. now you're in fourth grade, right? Yep. And I, I've found sometimes in some settings that people feel talked down to a little mm -hmm. bit in that. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's... I th yeah, it was either Rohr or McLaren who talked about it as boxes that expand. Yeah. And that, like, you get a bigger yes. box. That's but the right. bigger box only works if you have that other box inside of it. And so who, who though, is, who's doing this kind of work? Because I think, and uh, this is me saying this, this is not you saying this. I'm seeing yeah. this sort of, like, ex-evangelical movement, which I distinguish yeah. from post-evangelicals as ex-evangelicals, sort of the angry, like, let's yeah. burn it all down. Right. Largely exists as an online kind of experience as yep. like, and it's largely, it feels largely reactionary and angry mm -hmm. and which is like some people need that sort of like space for a period of time, but it's yeah. just not sustainable. And so we see, we see this sort of like movement of some people who have doubled down on like, I'm a fundamentalist conservative and I double down on that. And some right. people who go through this journey where they then become a fundamentalist progressive and start doubling Absolutely. down on that. Yes. And then there's a sort of like, not, I wouldn't even call it being a moderate. I would call it this sort of like way that, that's trying to transcend and include, that's trying to yeah. not live in these binary, well, it's either this or this. Who are the people that you're paying attention to that are doing that sort of work? Oh, man. Well, <clears throat> I think the bad news, I'll, I'll do bad news, good news. The bad news is I don't know of many. Yeah. 
And that doesn't mean there aren't, I'm sure there are, but if I am forced to list them, I don't know of, of a lot of communities who are actively fleshing it out, especially right now. I mean, things are so divided and then just militantly set up against the other. And you're right. The, the right and the left have equal fundamentalist energy in their ranks. And so I, I think the, yeah, the bad news is I'm, I'm just not seeing it very much. Well, get, get to the good news. The, the good news is, and you may think this is totally naive, but I think we are getting to a point where we are burning ourselves up with this way of being. Mm-hmm. And I, I even sense, a, even on, you know, an often dumpster fire like Twitter, you know, there is, it, things can get so nasty and so unhelpful. But I think people are even getting tired of that way of being. And I think there will always be some people who are just trying to cause pain. But I think those who have, who, who deeply desire truth and justice and goodness and wholeness and accountability and all these really beautiful things are going to say, yes, but we've got to embody the thing that we long for. Ronald Rollheiser, one of my favorite writers, he made the observation that looking back through history, many movements that were based in truth failed because the energy powering them was ugly. Wow. That's, yeah, push into that a little bit. That, to me, resonates so deeply. And some of his observation is people get really compelled by the the beauty of the idea. But when they get close, they sniff around and they say, there's something dark here. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Hmm. And so there's that side. And then there's the Richard Rohr, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. Hmm. Or Jesus, bad tree doesn't come from a good, uh, bad fruit right. doesn't come from a good tree and vice versa. And I don't know how we reconcile. Those are, those are quite dualistic perspectives. But there is, we do know that whatever's going on inside of us will come out. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so we're scratching around a lot of deep and complex things. But I think I long to embody what I want to see, not just hurt people so they agree with me about it. Yeah. So my experience in trying to move towards that yeah. has been that it it's required a contemplative journey on my part. Mm. Yes. which I was not trained to do in my church experience growing up. Yeah. And it seems it seems that like the only way I've been able to live when I'm able to in sort of non-binary spaces, even yeah. the idea of uh I've been I've been going through Oshetta Moore's book Dear White Peacemakers, which wow. has been fascinating yeah. and helpful and one thing she talks about is the being able to dignify your enemy rather than dehumanizing your enemy and what like wow. is such as like compelling, beautiful way forward. And it sounds so good. And it's like, but 
but my natural inclination is not to do that. And so it's, it's yep. contemplative practices that have been helpful. I, for me, I'm curious for you, what's been helpful for you in, in that? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that would have to be my second answer. My first answer is doing it wrong for so long. Hmm. My first answer is, why am I not still doing it that way? Because I doubled pain rather than healed it. And then the second answer would 100% be to submit to the kinds of practices that could possibly turn me into the kind of person who could participate in peacemaking. Can I tell you a story about that? In 2016, I don't know if you heard, we had an election. Did you, did you hear about that? You know, somewhere, <laughs> somewhere around the grapevine, I heard about that. So the fall, we're just watching in our Sunday night community, just with horror, what's going on in the country, and then noticing some of that energy in our community. And we were saying, if it's just a matter of, all right, just try really hard to love each other. That's not how human beings work. Just try harder. And so what we said is, all right, we're going to embed a new practice. And what we did is we, every Sunday, we did a confession, silence, and an assurance. And we said, we're going to add after the assurance, a prayer for one of our enemies. And the way I set it up every time is, hey, we know Jesus said to do this. Pray for your enemies. Bless those who curse you. But raise your hand if you do it regularly. Well, and of course, none of our hands went up, my, mine included. We know it and we even believe it's true. We just don't do it. And so we said as a community, let, let's commit ourselves to doing it. And so every um, Sunday night, we said, we're going to do it 52 times, you know, one for this whole year. And what might be possible in us? after 52 practices of praying for an enemy. And so a few of the, the nights we do like, is there a global enemy like a Vladimir Putin or something like that? Often I would guide us to say, is there someone in your life who has become like an enemy? And we'd spend some time just praying for them. But two different times as we are approaching November, we put up a picture of Donald Trump and of Hillary Clinton and said, we're going to give you some space to pray, not for the one you're for, for the other one. And not like pray that God would smite them. Pray that God would like pray for their, for their health, pray for their marriages, pray for their kids, like pray for these human beings. And I'm telling you, we, no one was ever happy <laughs> that we had to do that. And we felt some things changing inside us. I mean, there's a reason. Jesus calls us to pray for our enemies and bless those who curse us. Our enemies don't need it near as much as we do. It rehumanizes. It puts us in the back in the flow of grace. I mean, I mean it's, I, I could talk for an hour just about that simple practice, but the point of the story is just thinking, trying to think good thoughts about those I disagreed with didn't work but an embodied communal practice really did. I love that. 
I love that. One of the things I appreciate about that was the consistency of doing that practice over 52 weeks where I had a similar experience where I was, I, I led our church in praying for their political enemies during that, during that season. And out of the, like, we're going to pray blessings over the person that we are not voting for. And a woman came up to me after the service and she said, I was just on the story at a church I was preaching at this weekend. And she says to me, uh, I prayed for this person. And what I prayed for them was that God would bless their family outside of the White House. And I was like, oh, you did not understand the assignment. And I was real frustrated with her there. And I realized a couple of things. One was that I hadn't given permission for like, maybe you're not in a place where you can actually pray those blessings yet. And I need to give you some space. But the other thing was exactly what you're describing here. We had not developed a consistent practice of that. And so to expect that somebody can just all of a sudden pray blessings over an enemy when that has not been something that has been forming them regularly is, is a huge mess. I think one of the things that's brilliant about the liturgy is that it helps us do things over and over and over. It's like going to a fitness center. You don't work out one time and suddenly you're healthy, right? You start with, you start small and you start building that muscle. And I really think the spiritual life, obviously infused by the spirit, has that similar way of growth. It's not all or nothing. It's not do it once and, you're, and it's fixed. But it's, it's join this current. It's join this movement and be formed over time. So, yeah. That's, yeah, that's really good. That's really helpful, especially for somebody like me who's been trained to like, okay, I'm going to have this thing at the end of my sermon that yeah. I'm going to be responding to. And the next week, a different thing. Yeah. But like, yeah. what are the things that over time are building the kinds of muscles yes. that we want to build? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. It's really good. It's really good. So you have been developing some things over the years where you're working with pastors in different like sorts of ways who are maybe like, would they be pastors that are on this journey or are they just sort of pastors that are hungering for some sort of like different kind of connection and are trying to figure out their own spiritual journey? Like, yeah, how would you describe the folks you've been working it's, with? It's a pretty wide range, but it tends to be people who are saying, I know there's more. But I, I'm not, I'm not ready to give up. So it's that, it's that I can't stay where I'm at, but I don't want to jump ship. So yeah, okay. Hungry for more, whether it's different or wider or deeper, or whatever it is. Yeah. So you've got this gathering coming up in New York towards the end of May called yeah. Pastors, Priests, and Guides. Yeah. Do you mind? Yeah. What is that? What, who's that for? What does that sort of look like? Yes. Oh, we are, we are so excited about this. It's a two-day retreat. We're not calling it a conference. It's a retreat. And it's specifically to help us create holy space to do two things. One, to begin to heal from what we've been through. I mean, the last few years have been utterly brutal. And I, I've talked to more of my friends who are in ministry who are either actively quitting or about to. And so there is a need for healing that I've just, in my 20 years of ministry, have never seen a moment like this. So the first half of the retreat is going to be largely about retreat. We're going to have holy space. 
We're going to have a guided morning of just spiritual practices. We're going to have space in the city to be alone to pray. So first half is to begin healing from where we've been. But the second half is going to be to begin reimagining how to do it for how to do it different moving forward. Because we can't just come and say, all right, let's get all healed up and then go back to do what stopped working a long time ago. And so we're going to try to hold these two things. We have, uh, uh, you can see on the website, it's pastorspriestsandguides.com. We have a number of different people leading us. Stephanie Spellers is just an absolute brilliant. Um, she wrote the book, The Church Cracked Open last year. And we have a number of different, really wonderful uh, spiritual guides to lead us. But the heart is healing and reimagine. I love that. And is the reimagining in the way that it's going to work at this? Is that like, is that conversation? Is that sort of lecture? Is that experiential? What does that sort of look like? Yeah, great question. It is certainly not going to be a series of lectures. If sure. you, you know, it, it's got to be, it's got to be embodied. Now, I, like I said, though, earlier, I think there will be some real content shared and I'm excited about that, but the content will be shared in a way that empowers us to actually do it. And so I think there will be, especially at the beginning, there'll be some real vision for what the church, where we are and what we can be. But I think especially on the last morning, it's going to be a lot of conversation, way more workshoppy. How are we going to do this? And I think what's really exciting is it's an explicitly intentionally ecumenical gathering. I mean, yeah, it's here yeah, at that. General Theological Seminary, which is an Episcopalian seminary. And I'll tell you, they've never done something like this, which is really exciting. And then we'll have some kind of in the evangelical, post-evangelical uh, world. We'll have a number of Episcopalians. Um, I know we have uh, a Lutheran pastor already uh, scheduled to come and we're just saying not what's the one right way this all looks, but how do we all bring from our own tradition the strengths and wisdom and insight that can bless the whole. So I hope we leave with a new just imagination for what's even possible. Yeah. Well, you're so good at both like paying attention to wider streams within the church, but then also bringing together a lot of different folks from a lot of different kinds of streams. And so, yeah, it seems so fascinating to me, this not only like the ability to learn from and sit under folks from different streams, but to be in community with some people from different yeah. streams of the church and to yep. have some peers in that kind of way. You're yeah. really good at bringing those sorts of groups Thank together. You. I'm, I think it's gonna be the, really special. The second day, we're going to end the day early and then the whole evening, the intention is, hey, you're in Manhattan. Go experience beauty. Go to a Broadway show. Go to, you know, we're going to list out the restaurants just within walking distance. It's unbelievable. So the, the evening is going to be really fun. But right before we do that, we're going to have a pretty robust Eucharist service. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be at the intersection of a couple different Christian traditions. And... I'm as excited about that as anything. I think we'll have the full, like, I don't even, I'm not even Episcopalian enough to know what's the, the, the swinging incense. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, we're going to bring that and we're going to sing a pop song 
and we're going to, we're going to have a spiritual practice, probably very Ignatian spirituality. And we're going to try to bring it all together, not in a weird mishmash, but in a like, almost like family party, like potluck, like let's do this together. And then we'll see what happens. I love that. And I love like, you're able to do that in a way when if somebody else was describing that, I think it could feel like, well, well, so I was, I was watching Top Chef the other day on my flight home. Oh, okay. And yeah. they had done this thing in Top Chef where they had people that were developing their dishes and then they told them, you have to work together with a partner and the two of you have to figure out, like you're already creating a dish, you have to figure yep. out how to do that, to do it together. And what the losing team did was instead of figuring out how do we now create a new dish, combining the best of what we are bo- what we were both bringing to the table and create something new out of that, the losing team, what they did is they both held on to the way that they were going to do it and they just tried to put it on the plate together and it just didn't work. Wow. Yes. So when I hear you describe that, like somebody else could do that and it could feel like we're just going to, we're going to grab this piece and this piece and we're just going to kind of like put them all together and hope that it'll work out on the plate together. Right. But what I know that you're so good at doing is it's going to be so integrated in a way it's going to feel like seamless and these different streams kind of feeding off of each other in a way that that I can imagine will be really powerful. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. Yeah, we're going to worship together, probably in some ways we've never worshiped together. And I mean, the most interesting things almost always seem to happen at the intersections. And so, yeah, we're looking forward to that. Love it. So that's, that's May 23rd to 25th, right out in New York. Yep, here in Manhattan. Yep. And it'll be a time of healing and a time of reimagining. And yeah, I would love for, for maybe some of you that are listening, like this would be a great opportunity for you to both get some rest and also to kind of reimagine the way that you're engaging in the work that you're doing at your church. So would love to have you be a part of that. And the yes. website again is, is what? Pastorspriestsandguides.com. Pa- Pastorspriestsandguides.com. I love that. Yep. Well, Aaron, you are a gift to the church. I'm really grateful for the way that you are engaging, the way that you're holding these different spaces together, the way that you are bringing different kinds of people together. And I'm really grateful for the work that you put out. Like I've told you this before, and I think I mentioned a little bit ago, but a new liturgy has been really meaningful and helpful for Mm -hmm. me. So I'm grateful for that. Thanks, man. Yeah, for what you're doing. Thank you. Yeah, that means a ton. Thanks. Thanks.